Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this audio from 2014, Convention of State's co-founder Michael Farris speaks to a town hall in Maine on the only solution as big as the problem in D.C. Thank you, Ken. It's a real privilege to be here, especially in the Franco-American Center. I wasn't, I just saw Franco Center on my schedule. I didn't really know what this really was. And so, um, je parle français comme un vache espagnol et je m'appelle uh, Michael Ferris, j'habite en Virginie. Uh, that means I speak French like a Spanish cow. That's what I just told you, and that I live in Virginia, so, um, which is the truth. I do speak French just exactly like a Spanish cow. But um, it is a beautiful building and theater here tonight. It's what an what a honor to be here. And thank you so much for coming out uh, to get a group to come out on a night like this. Uh, in the middle of the week is, is an honor and privilege, and I know that all of you sacrifice. And I want to say a special thanks to the members of the legislature. First, for your service to the people of the state of Maine, and for your service to the people of the, uh, of the United States as well, but for being here tonight. It's a real honor and privilege to have you all here. I uh, perhaps will start off um, in the summer of 1971. In the summer of 1971, three things happened to me all within a very short time period, about two weeks, more or less. Uh, first, my wife and I got married. Uh, now, I had been 20 for a whole week when we got married. Uh, my wife was 19. We've been married for 43 years. Um, so that makes me 63. And my wife is 38. It's the same wife, just different math. Um, and. Um, so that was, that was event one in, in sequence. Event two is that I got my life on the right track spiritually. I, I became a Christian when I was six years old, but I was lukewarm spiritually uh, for high school and the first couple years of college. And right after we got married, we got involved with a group called The Navigators. And The Navigators was a great discipleship program for my wife, who was a new Christian, and for me, even though I had a lot of head knowledge, it was new for me to be actually discipled and walking with God in a consistent fashion. And right after that, I started taking constitutional law from a guy named Dr. Dick S. Payne. And he had a PhD from Harvard, but he was an originalist. And he taught me the original meaning of the Constitution. And it turned me around politically every bit as much as I got turned around spiritually through the navigators. And Dr. Payne's teachings about the Constitution were really pretty simple. And that is, if you believe in the idea of the rule of law, rather than the rule of men, then law is knowable and it's fixed. And if you're going to change the law, you change it according to the rules. You don't allow people on their own, unilaterally, to change the rules from time to time. That's what we mean by the rule of law, rather than by the rule of man. And this country is committed to the rule of law rather than the rule of man. And he systematically taught us basically a, a, a three-step sequence. Step one was, what do the words of the Constitution actually say? And if you can get the answer about a constitutional question from what the words of the Constitution actually say, that's the end of the inquiry. There's no need to interpret. 
for example, how old does the president have to be? The answer is 35. Now, a friend of mine, to poke fun at the living constitutional theory, wrote an article, a law review article called Bill Clinton is Unconstitutional. And the thesis was that 35 couldn't literally mean 35. We can't take the words all that literally. We, you know, 35 in 1789 was about three-fourths of the life expectancy of the day. So the real constitutional rule should be three-fourths of current life expectancy. And Bill Clinton was too young to be president of the United States. In fact, the only person in the, in the sequence to be president that was officially in the sequence that was actually old enough, according to this calculation, was Strom Thurmond. <laughs> and, and so, obviously, he was, he was trying to emphasize the point, if the words give you the answer, that's the answer. But there's a lot of times the words don't give you the answer. You have to interpret them. For example, in the area that I've dealt with a lot in the last 35 plus years as a lawyer uh, is the area of religious freedom and, ho and homeschooling and parents' rights. And when there's a religious question involving children, well, whose religious freedom gets measured here? The child's or the parents or the government on behalf of the child or a guardian ad litem on behalf of the child or is it the parents? Those are you cannot solve that question by just simply reading the text of the First Amendment. You have to interpret that question, and you have to have a theory of interpretation. And the theory of interpretation, of course, that I've always argued is the original meaning of the Constitution. And the original meaning of the Constitution is simply this. What did the words mean to the people who wrote and ratified them? It's a very simple idea. What do the words mean to the people who wrote and ratified the words? That's what we're talking about. We're not trying to psychoanalyze anybody and say, what did they mean? What did they have in mind? This is not psychoanalysis. This is legal analysis. And in legal words have meaning. So ordinary deed. The line on the property runs from the apple tree to the big rock following the creek line. 100 years later, the apple tree's gone, the big rock's gone, the creek is gone. What do you do? Well, you don't have a theory of, well, who really needs the property? You don't have a theory about, what does the judge think the property line should be? No, what you do is you do your very best to find out where was the apple tree? Where was the big rock? And where was the creek line? And you use whatever evidence you can find to give the deed its original meaning. That's how you do it in an ordinary contract, and that's how you do it in the Constitution of the United States as well. And so, step one, what do the words say? Step two, what did the words mean to the people who wrote and ratified the Constitution? Step three, what are the rascals doing down there who wear the black robes in Washington, D.C. with all this stuff? So you read Supreme Court decisions not for devotional purposes, not because this is the law, but because this is the current ruling of the Supreme Court. We need to know what's going on. If you want to know what's going on in your country, you've got to know what's going on. You've got to read these cases. You've got to know them, not because they're right, uh, you know, the Supreme Court is, a, is right a little more often than the ACLU, but not a whole lot more often than the ACLU. The ACLU is not 100% wrong. They get stuff right once in a while. And the Supreme Court's not wrong all the time. There are recent decisions on the Second Amendment by a 5-4 to four vote. Uh, 
were correct on the question of whether or not the right to possess arms is a personal right or is a group right in a state-controlled militia. And there are words in the, in the Second Amendment that make that an open question if you're just looking at the words of the Second Amendment. If you read the original meaning of the Second Amendment, it's not even a close question. It's very simple to get the correct answer, as the Supreme Court majority did in those two Second Amendment cases. But if you just limit yourself to just the words, and there's another you know, example of limiting yourself to just the words, would show how you need original meaning to really make sense of it. The right to trial by jury does not say in the Constitution that jury trials in criminal cases have to render unanimous verdicts. Doesn't say that anywhere. Can't find it. But it is a constitutional requirement because when the founders said jury trial, they ported in with the phrase jury trial all the recognized attributes of what a jury was and unanimous verdict in criminal cases was an absolutely settled attribute. So the original meaning of jury trial, unanimous verdicts. It is a constitutional requirement. But you learn that from original source materials. And original source materials includes the records of the Constitutional Convention, the records of the Ratification Convention, things like the Federalist Papers, the laws that were in place at the time, court decisions at the place of time. What did due process mean in 1789? Well, we know. We can figure it out by looking at original source materials. That's how you do original intent analysis. You don't look at UN treaties today. You do not look at the law of Europe today. You don't listen to the American Medical Association today. You don't look at law reviews today unless those law reviews are simply a summation of historical evidence. You look at what the people who wrote and ratified the document thought about it. That's how, and then when you look at what the Supreme Court's done, you judge the Supreme Court on whether or not they're measuring up to the plumb bob of the text of the Constitution and the original meaning of the Constitution. That's how Dr. Payne taught me constitutional law. That's how I teach constitutional law at Patrick Henry College. Now, it's one thing to be a constitutional theoretician. It's another thing to go stand in court with people and defend them. When you're standing in court with people defending them and you're in a lower court, you don't have the ability to say to the judge, well, I know the Supreme Court said that, but they're in violation of the original meaning of the Constitution on this point, and you really should ignore the Supreme Court and listen to what I, what I tell you about James Madison. They're not going to do it. You know, just the reality is they're not going to do it. And unless you want your clients to go to jail, you got to do something better than that. Now, if you want to reverse a Supreme Court precedent, which I've tried to do many times, and I've, I've done it in one context at least, and I'll tell you about that later, um, you can build the case for why the Supreme Court's wrong, but you better not base all your arguments upon that. You, have to, you can put those in the briefs and just tell the judge, look, at, we're building our case in case this gets to the Supreme Court, that they can reconsider their decision in Smith versus Jones, but you better have something else if you don't want your people to go to jail. And so I have lived 35 years, more or less, actually more, um, in this arena, both as a theoretician, because I teach constitutional law, but as a practitioner, and I have to have solutions that really work. And so I am not a fan of people going around espousing 
theory that has no practical application and has no realistic chance of ever working. Because just like I don't want my clients to go to jail, I don't want American liberty to be lost by people just espousing theory. I believe, my dad told me when I first started in this business, I was the state director of Moral Majority in 1980. That's how I kind of really got launched into all this stuff. And my dad said, never give the people or tell them a problem until you've got a solution that's realistic and will actually work. And so all my life I've been guided by that principle. And because of that, I've been able to be involved in a lot of stuff that has actually worked. Homeschooling was basically illegal in this country when I started Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Who were we going up against? We were going up against the teachers union, which is the most powerful political group in every state legislature of this country. We were also going up against the State Superintendents Association and the State Department of Education and the Principals Association. Now sometimes on some education issues, the management and labor get on different sides of those issues. But on homing, they were all together. And we're this little tiny minority facing the biggest powerful, most political juggernaut in any state legislature in the country. 30 plus years later, Homeschooling is legal every place in the country. Why? Well, number one, the power of God. Number two, we had realistic plans. Number three, we out-hustled them. And so when we, I, am, I believe that it is possible to do what people tell you is politically impossible because I've seen it and lived it for getting close to four decades now. I've, gotten, I've been a part and been a leader in getting it done. Anything I tell you tonight where I say that I, I, I've done it, it's just shorthand. For God's, with God's blessing, a team of people did it, and I happen to be involved in the leadership of that. So we, we just agree that that's what I mean when I, when I say that I got something done. That's what I mean in every single instance. Unless, it, unless it's a story of a mess up, and then I'm, I could be personally responsible for mess ups. But a good thing that happened, it's always God and others that were clearly involved as well. So, let's just do a little bit of constitutional teaching here. Effectively in this country, and I've already painted this picture, I just haven't given you clear words that synthesize it into a single sentence. Effectively, there's two constitutions in this country. People say, oh, the federal government doesn't obey the constitution at all. I get that. I understand what you mean by that when people say that. But it's not the most precise way to explain the problem. The problem is this. There are two constitutions. There's the constitution as written. Then there's the constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. In fact, the federal government does pretty much follow the constitution, just the wrong one. They're following the constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. They don't ignore the constitution. They abuse the Constitution with these false interpretations by the Supreme Court. So the trick of everything that we're involved in here is to recognize that reality, analyze the situation we're in correctly, and then you propose a solution that's based on the correct reality. The correct reality is the government isn't pretending to be or isn't admitting this lawlessness. It's got a form of lawfulness about it but it's the Supreme Court's false interpretations of the Constitution that are the core of the problem. And there are three core areas 
There's lots of them, but we'll just talk about the biggest three. The first is the General Welfare Clause. A group called the Center for Public Integrity, and it's not a conservative group, and I can prove that with one factoid, Ariana Huffington's on their board. The Center for Public Integrity says, using GAO accounting figures, that in the year 2020, 89% of all federal tax revenue will have to be devoted to four things. Interest on the national debt, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. 11% of all federal revenue will be left over for national defense, foreign policy, and everything else the federal government thinks that it needs to do. It's unsustainable. We are headed for a fiscal cliff. States are getting a lot of money from the federal government. There wasn't any of that money that I just la labeled for you that's going to the states. Medicaid, outside those, program, those particular programs. It's just not gonna happen. There's not gonna be more education money from the, from the federal government, it's gone. All the kinds of things that we're seeing the federal government think that it's doing, being all things to all people, buying votes for, that, that's what they're doing, by the way. All deficit spending has one premise. How can I buy votes? That is it. Republicans and Democrats alike, 100% of federal spending is based on that premise, buying votes. Don't let anybody ever try to kid you that it's for altruism. It is simply, how many votes can I buy with this deficit spending? And they realize pretty accurately that the unborn and the little kids and the teenagers can't vote. So there's no point in buying votes from them. We give those people the bill and we buy votes. And it's all done through the general welfare clause. And that all comes from a case called Butler versus the United States, decided in the 1930s in a case that was um, Comrade Franklin Roosevelt's um, precursor the, of the uh, farm subsidies program that we have today. It's called the Agricultural Adjustment Act. And the specific legal question in the case of Butler versus the United States was this. Does, the federal, does Congress's power to tax and spend extend only to the enumerated powers or can it spend for purposes that are beyond their enumerated powers through the General Welfare Clause? That's the question. And that question is costing us, best estimate, $150 trillion. The national debt is not $18 trillion. That's the part they recognize. Here's their, here's their accounting system. If you buy a car and it's $40,000, it's no, no money down, no interest payments until January, when you drive off the lot, you owe $40,000. The way the federal government accounts it, you don't owe anything. When the first month's payment comes up, and that's, let's say it's $500 payment, you owe $500. That's it. They don't count the principal that they're borrowing from Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all the unfunded mandates. Like I told you before, I'm 63, so I'm old enough to collect Social Security. I've been paying into the system for a long, long time. Every dime that I've paid into Social Security, every dime that everybody's been paid into Social Security is gone. There's not a nickel in the Social Security Trust Fund. It, the moment it comes in, it goes right back out. 
And there's a, there's a stack of IOUs in there. That's all that's in the Social Security Trust Fund. And so an action, if, if I had a pension plan that was exactly the same terms as Social Security in it, with a private company, they would have to be carrying a liability on their books in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the federal government carries zero on their books for what they owe me. Zero. They've taken all my money, they put an IOU in, and zero is carried on their books because of the phony accounting system that they use. The real national debt is at least $100 trillion. It probably is more like $150 trillion. It may be $200 trillion. Nobody really knows, but it is a big, big number and is going to crush our children and our grandchildren. It may get up and crush us if we just live another 5, 10, 20 years. 20 years, it's going to crush us if we don't do something, I guarantee you. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. The general welfare clause, the, the simplest way to prove that they got the wrong definition, by the way, the Supreme Court said, the, and they affirmed this in the Obamacare decision, because the Obamacare decision was not based on the Commerce Clause that people thought they were going to do it on. They based it on the general welfare clause. And the, the correct, just modern lingo version of it is this. Congress can tax and spend for any fool purpose they want. That's what it means. And that's where they adopted it in Butler versus the United States. Very narrowly, and a little more scholarly, Congress is not limited to the its enumerated powers, but can spend for additional um, purposes that, they, that Congress unilaterally deems to be in the national interest. That's the more eloquent explanation, but it just means any full thing they want. That decision, that $150 trillion decision, let's call it, isn't about that much text in the Supreme Court, about three inches of text, a paragraph and a half. You think that if we're going to spend that much money, the people would deserve something more than about nine sentences. But that's all we got. And what they said was something like this. Well, James Madison took the position that the General Welfare Clause granted no additional power to Congress to tax and spend. Alexander Hamilton said, no, it did grant additional power to Congress to tax and spend. And Joseph Story agreed with Alexander Hamilton, and we think the two of them are right. No explanation of why they're right. No analysis, just that much. I mean, it's really close to literally exactly what they said. And I had wondered for a long, long time how they got there. And so when Patrick Henry College acquired a database of old Supreme Court records recently, the second case I went and looked at, all the records, was this one. The first one was the great parents' rights case called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, which you can understand why I would go look at that one first. But the second one was this case. And I went back and read all the briefs and records. And the government actually filed a separate brief on the history of the general welfare clause that was really pretty good. And what they cited that surprised me was they, they showed who agreed with Hamilton and who agreed with Madison. And with, Ham, with Madison, Jefferson agreed with him. He was the most important one. But George Washington agreed with Hamilton, and James Monroe agreed with Hamilton. And then when a little later in history, Daniel Webster agreed with Hamilton. And the one that just floored me, John C. Calhoun, they said, agreed with Hamilton. I said, ain't possible. There is no way on this earth that John C. Calhoun thought that Congress could tax and spend for any, any purpose it wanted. Just not possible. 
So I went and dug, I drilled down into the original sources of all the stuff they cited. And they got one thing right and one thing wrong. John C. Calhoun did, in fact, endorse Hamilton's position. What they got wrong was Hamilton's position. Here's Hamilton's actual position. He did contend that it was an additional grant of power. But here's what it was. If Congress determines that something is truly national in scope, and in the interest of this country, not local in scope, not for somebody's private project, not some, well, what today we would call an earmark, not anything like that, but something national in scope and beyond the jurisdictional competence of the states, then you could do it under the general welfare clause. I can think of only two kinds of spending in all of US history that qualifies for that the space program, and the Louisiana Purchase. The other purchases, like the Gadsden Purchase, the Alaska Purchase, they would qualify. But other than that, I can't think of anything that meets that test. Education spending comes from the Supreme Court's interpretation of the General Welfare Clause. Let's apply the real Hamilton test. Is it national in scope? Well, let's not even debate that. Can the states do it? Of course the states can spend money on education. And, and the simple way to, to say his rule is, if the states can spend money on it, the federal government is jurisdictionally precluded from spending money on the same topic. Welfare programs? Federal government can't spend money on welfare program through the general welfare clause. Federal government can't spend money on any of the programs, all the entitlement programs. 100% of the things that are bankrupting this country are unconstitutional even under the Hamilton view, and the Hamilton view was clearly the minority view of the founders. Give me either one and I'm happy as a clam. Because I, I don't mind the Louisiana Purchase. I, th I think that was good. And I, I think the space program, I'm okay with the space program too. But all these welfare programs, all this other stuff, it's utterly unconstitutional under the original meaning of the Constitution. What would have happened if instead of we say tax and spend for the general welfare clause, we would have said instead, Congress may tax and spend for a program truly national in scope, provided, however, it's beyond the jurisdictional competence of the states. There's no wiggle room in that kind of language that, can, that is as likely to get abused in later generations like the general welfare, okay? Lang clarity of language probably changes the outcome but at a minimum, it changes the defensibility of their grabbing power. There's no plausibility of them getting away with the nonsense they're getting away with. Obamacare, they couldn't look themselves in the mirror and say Obamacare is constitutional if that was the way that the General Welfare Clause had been phrased. Let's take Hamilton's meaning of it. That's okay. Let's take it. And they, Obamacare goes down to constitutional defeat. Commerce clause, second most. All federal regulations of business in this country come through commerce clause power. Commerce in those days meant shipping. Some of you are old enough to remember Dionne Warwick, her song, Trains and Boats and Planes. That's commerce. What happens inside of a General Motors automotive plant? Not a blessed thing inside there is commerce, nothing. Banking is not commerce. Banking's not commerce, how do I know? States regulate banking. 
States cannot regulate interstate commerce. Congress has the exclusive power to regulate interstate commerce. If banking is interstate commerce, the states can't regulate. The reason your ATM machine works, by the way, your card works in an ATM machine anywhere in the country is not because of federal law, it's state law. The states got together and said, you know what, it would really be good if the banking system worked well all over the country, so let's make a uniform set of rules. Because banking's under our jurisdiction, because it's not commerce, it's banking. And so we're going to pass something called the Uniform Commercial Code. They got people together, they held a convention, they wrote the, they wrote the rules, they went back to the states and ratified that, and we got the Uniform Commercial Code, and the Uniform Commercial Code gives all the banking laws for the country. That's why it works. If it's Congress, they'd still be trying to figure it out. Your ATM card wouldn't work, especially if they gave it over to the, the federal agencies to figure it out. It wouldn't work. But the state law works well. We don't need Congress to pass laws for domestic purposes that are national in scope. States have proven they know how to do it and get it done, and they get it done well. Commerce meant shipping. When that truck pulls up behind that General Motors car factory and the car goes on the little truck, commerce starts. When the truck gets to the car dealership and that car comes off the truck, commerce is over. That's commerce. If that truck crosses the state line, it's interstate commerce. And that's all that the federal government is supposed to be able to regulate. Now, there's a, the Clean Water Act is under the General Welfare Clause, or excuse me, under the Commerce Clause, is under the crazy idea that all this water is part of the navigable waters of the United States. There's a creek out behind Patrick Henry College that flows when it rains real hard, doesn't flow otherwise. And that is federally protected wetlands. Now, who decided how much land had to be wet and how wet did it have to be? Um, those are important policy questions. Congress didn't do that. The EPA did that, which shows us not only the Commerce Clause power abuse, it takes us to problem number three, and that is legislation by the executive branch in violation of the most important rule of the Constitution. The most important rule in any organization is this one. Who has the power to make the rules? And the most important rule in the Constitution is Article I, Section 1, that says all legislative authority is vested in the Congress of the United States, 100%. Which means the president can't make law, the bureaucracy shouldn't be able to make law, the Supreme Court shouldn't be able to make law, and for heaven's sakes, the United Nations should not be able to make law that binds the United States. And so, Article I, Section 1 was violated by the EPA's clean water rules. They decided it's one acre of land. How wet does it have to be? I didn't make this up. It's called the glancing goose test. When a goose flies over your property on the wettest hundred day in a hundred years of wetness, if it can look down on that day and see its reflection in the water, then it's wet enough to be federally protected wetland. Now, the reason no congressman would ever vote for such a stupid rule, at least if they read it, would be this. You can hear the ads. Congressman Jones does not have the sense that God gave a goose. And, but instead, they say, the secretary shall make rules. The secretary shall make rules. In the Obamacare legislation, 2,000 times, the secretary shall make rules. 
the Hobby Lobby case that went to the Supreme Court on the abortion mandate was not a result of what Congress said, but was one of those, the secretary shall make rules. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't unelect the EPA. And when Congress is giving away its legislative authority, it's not giving away its power. It's giving away the rights of American citizens to throw the rascals out. And they cannot take away our rights without our consent. That is what they're doing. It is utterly unconstitutional. There are 200 volumes of the Code of Federal Regulations. 200 volumes. Books, I mean, the stack would be about like one of those pillars. It is a huge amount of words and laws and regulations. And when people start talking about nullification theories, ladies and gentlemen, there are at least 20,000 laws that need to be nullified. State legislators couldn't consider, I mean, let's just, let's just pretend that this theory has any viability whatsoever. Just the sheer number of stuff that's got to go away makes it an absolutely ineffective weapon against something of that magnitude. It's like, remember the movie Indiana Jones? It's like getting in the knife fight with that big Egyptian. He'll cut you, 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 you know, the only way to fight something like that is you pull your pistol and shoot the big Egyptian in the gut. You take away their power to make law, period. That's the only way you deal with tyrants. And we have tyranny going on. The Founding Fathers would tell you, anyone other than your elected legislators who purports to make law is a tyrant. The President, Obama, is a tyrant. President Bush was a tyrant. President Clinton was a tyrant, and you can go on back, Republicans and Democrats alike. Now, some of them have been more faithful tyrants than others, a little more aggressive tyrants than others. So there's a, you know, there's, there is variance in their degree of tyranny. But anytime any president purports to make law by his unilateral action, it's an act of tyranny, because only the people themselves or their elected legislative representatives have the legal and moral authority to make law, period. That is the meaning of a constitutional republic. Actually, that's the meaning of a republic. A constitutional republic means that they can only make laws on the subject matter delegated to them by the people. That's the constitutional part of a constitutional republic. And so we've got a problem. All these administrative laws, President Obama legislating, like other presidents before him, but a little more aggressive, in fact, quite, quite a bit more aggressively. Nonetheless, we have a crisis in this country because the Supreme Court and the White House and Congress is a power cabal and they have one overriding rule. Washington's power will grow and be protected. That's their operating rule. And anyone who thinks that we're going to change Washington, D.C. from inside Washington is delusional. It, they're, you're utterly delusional. If you, no, no, let's just go elect some more Republicans. I am doing my part to elect more Republicans. I send out teenagers to go elect, you know, it's not just any Republican. I only, I only, if they give some semblance of being a constitutional conservative, then I, and they're 
I've never seen one running as a Democrat, so I, I would do it if there was one who was a Democrat. But since it's never happened, it's, it's been only Republicans. But I'm looking for constitutional conservatives running for office. I've raised millions of dollars for them. I have sent tens of thousands of people, organized teams to go do get out the vote drives. I have done as much as I'm in the upper 1% of helping to elect conservative people in Washington, in Washington DC in the country in terms of my own personal efforts. So nobody can say I don't believe in that. And I continue to believe in that. And nobody can say I'm not trying to, to overturn, you know, get good judges on the courts. Like good judges on the courts, the answer. By the way, you want to know, of the Republican appointees on the Supreme Court, how many of them voted on the conservative side on all of these four issues? The right to life, traditional marriage, parents' rights, and religious freedom. You're exactly right. Zero. Zero of the Republican appointees. Now, Clarence Thomas comes the closest. He only got one wrong. But, but, uh, but, and he's the only one on the court that holds to the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. So, the idea that we're, you know, let's just appoint good people. And that doesn't mean that I don't want to appoint good people on the court, and I'm doing my part. I teach constitutional law at a private, challenging, rigorous college, and I send my kids off to law school. Eight of my former students are at Harvard Law School right now. And of the five that are in their second or third year and are eligible for, for law review, all five are on the Harvard Law Review. You want to get people on the Supreme Court? You send them to Harvard, you get them on Harvard Law Review, you send them off, I've got one at Yale, I've got a bunch at the University of Virginia, I've got some at Georgetown, and so on. That's how you get people. I'm flooding the zone with constitutional conservatives, and in the long haul, we are going to take it back. It's not going to be fast enough, folks. It's something we've got to do. It's not going to be fast enough to save this country. There's only one other weapon. And it's the weapon that I'm here to talk to you about. And that is, this is the Convention of the States project. Article 5 of the Constitution gives us two ways to propose amendments and two ways to ratify amendments. You propose amendments, Congress, when two-thirds of both houses of Congress propose an amendment, amendment goes out to the states for ratification. The two ways, the, the second way is when two-thirds of the states pass an application for a convention for the same purpose, then you have a convention for that purpose. There have been over 400 applications passed by the states that are, um, most of them are still pending in this country, but there's probably at least 200 that are still pending. It didn't really matter what the total number is because there's never been anything close to two-thirds of the states on the same subject matter except for the balanced budget amendment and we got pretty close in the 1970s. And we're at about 20 or 21 right now. Some people say it's 24. I think it's, if you do the aggregation rules correctly, it's more like 20 or 21. So that's the biggest we've ever gotten. But we've never had two-thirds on the same subject matter. And the reason we know a subject matter rule is required because we've, we have a 200-plus year legislative precedent that is absolutely binding by now that says when there's an agreement on the subject matter, then you have a convention. If the states wanted to have a convention, for just general purposes. If two-thirds of the state said, we want a convention for general purposes, you could do it. If you wanted to have a convention for uh, you know, adopting a rule that, um, you, you, we just want to say Obamacare is repealed. That's it. 
If two-thirds of the states wanted a convention for that purpose, you could do it just for that one little thing. So whatever the states say is the purpose, when two-thirds of them agree on the purpose, then you have a convention. Otherwise, we'd have already had a whole bunch of conventions because we're way over the total number of two-thirds of the states. You know, we could have six or seven conventions for the number of applications that are, if they just count for anything, if the purpose doesn't count. There are two ways to ratify. We're not going to talk much about those, just other than to mention. You can ratify by state ratification conventions, or you can ratify by the state legislatures. We've used ratification, state-based ratification conventions twice, for the original Constitution itself and for the 21st Amendment, which is the repeal of prohibition. And so it's very rarely used, and it tends to get a more conservative result. And so legislators tend to be more liberal than the people. If you want proof of that, Look at all the number of marriage amendments that pass through the people. And you look at the, you know, including California. When Obama got elected, the day Obama got elected, the people of California who elected Obama voted for traditional marriage. Same day. And so the people are more conservative than legislators. And so the chances of, of Congress, Congress gets to choose the method of ratification. The chances of Congress choosing the method, uh, the people method, this ratification convention on anything conservative is zero. They're going to take their chances with the state legislatures. No, they could, but it's realistically zero. But let's talk about how the convention process works. There's three steps. And the three steps can be understood by uh, a combination of three numbers. The official analogy for these three numbers is your junior high locker combination. If you think of something else, it's your problem, not mine. The three numbers are 34, 26, 38. Um, and so um, oh, some of you went someplace besides your junior high locker combination. I see. All right, it's okay. Um, 34 is two-thirds of the states. That's how many states it takes to call for the convention and set the agenda. Step one, set the agenda. Step two is draft the amendments. That's at the convention. There'll be a balanced budget. Our application asks for a convention of the states for this purpose, to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, to limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and impose term limits on federal officials. That would include both Congress and the judiciary. I pretty much like the idea of term limits on Congress. I could take it or leave it, really tell you the truth. It's okay with me. I really want term limits on federal judges. Absolutely committed to that one. So, um, so those are our purposes. Three states have already passed that. Um, Georgia, Florida, Alaska. We passed it in the House of Representatives in, in uh, Alabama and Arizona this, this year. And uh, we ran out of time in Air, uh, Alabama to get it through the Senate. We hit a roadblock in Arizona that we were working on. Um, we hope to pass it this year. We've got prime sponsors in 29 states, including Maine, and we are going to move hard and fast this, our second year of operation. My goal is to get this done in 2016. If, at the worst case, 2017. I don't think we have a whole lot more time. So we are pushing hard to get this wrapped up, to get to 34 states 
in that period of time. Both houses of the legislature, the governor has no say. He can be a cheerleader, but so can radio talk show hosts, and so can you, and so can pastors, and so can movie stars, and whoever else wants to comment. But the governor has no official say. We don't need him to sign it. So governors are an irrelevancy in a, in a formal sense. The, um, um, the convention will be held at a time and a place that Congress designates. When it says call the convention, that's what it means. It doesn't mean set the agenda. We already have a legislative precedent saying the states must agree on the agenda before the convention is called. And on the question of can you change the rules in the middle of the stream, I've already litigated that case, folks. There's very, there are very few lawyers in the country that have litigated an Article 5 case. I'm one of them. Some of you will remember with the Equal Rights Amendment, they were, they were given in the text of the Equal Rights Amendment seven years to ratify. When that, they were getting close to the end of the seven years, the lefties went to Congress and got them by ordinary legislation to purport to extend that deadline for another three and a half years. And we, I represented four Washington state legislators that filed the first constitutional challenge to that in the late 1970s. I was two years out of law school taking on the federal government by myself. A bit foolhardy, but nobody else was willing to do it, and I did it. Fortunately, about two weeks later, some more experienced lawyers filed a similar case in Idaho, and I was smart enough to do a uh, to transfer my case from the Federal District Court in Tacoma, Washington, to the Federal District Court in Boise, Idaho, and we worked together. I played an actual speaking role in the case, but I wasn't lead counsel. It was a man who represented Idaho, who was about the age I am now, who was the lead counsel uh, in, the, in the case, and did most of the you know, arguments. I did a portion, but I was there and helped. I learned a lot about Article 5. And the ruling was, you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. That's the rule. Now that decision is not a binding precedent because the Supreme Court granted review of the case but then sat on it until the second deadline passed and then they said the case is moot. Which by the way answers the question, some states purport to ratify it now. If it's moot, the only way it's moot is if the deadline was binding and gone. If, it's, if, if it still could be ratified, it, the case wasn't moot. So any state legislators that think that uh, this is still a viable issue, it's, it's, it's already been definitively ruled by the Supreme Court. It's over. So um, I learned a lot in that case. The other rule, that, by the way, is that states can rescind their, their ratifications. That was the other ruling of the case. And this, which is also true, the states can rescind their applications. So the reason that some people say we've already reached 34 states for the balanced budget amendment, now because the rescissions count. If you could count all the states that, that, you know, if rescissions didn't count, then we would be at 34 states. But nobody believes, no, no serious constitutional lawyer or scholar believes that that's a realistic case. Um, and so, so that's where we are. It's one state, one vote at every step. 34 states, one state, one vote to call the convention. 38 states, one state, one vote to ratify amendments. They would be sent out, if, in our convention's case, it'd probably be six to eight amendments, something like that would come out. 
and they would be like the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights were sent out 12 amendments. They ratified 10. They ratified the 11th one in the 1990s. And so you, you ratify them one by one. When you get three-fourths of the states to agree to each one, the balanced budget amendment, putting term limits on the federal judges, stopping the use of international law to control the domestic policy of the United States, uh, stop the use of executive power to create legislation, uh, require a supermajority for tax increases, um, sunset all the existing taxes, repeal the 16th Amendment, um, have real checks and balances on the Supreme Court. Those are the kinds of things that will come out one by one, and we ratify them one by one. Whenever three-fourths, and at this, in the middle of the process, it's still one state, one vote. It is a convention of states. Some people say, well, we just made that up. It's an invented term. It's really a constitutional convention, a con-con. People who say that are legally, historically ignorant. The first use of the term convention of the states was in 1790, excuse me, 1788 by the legislature of Virginia, who passed the first application under Article 5, it was filed in May of 1789 in, in the Congress, when the Congress first convened, to call for the, the Bill of Rights, basically. And they called it a Convention of States. And it's, it's, it has had that term ever since. Was, the Supreme Court used that term in 1831. And multiple times, multiple times, it was called a Convention of States. And the people who said, oh, Mike Ferris just made that term up, just show how ignorant they are. So, by the way, when you catch a person in a lie, you, you in, in, there's a rule of law. If, you, if they lie to you once, you're entitled to disbelieve them all the time. It also goes for competence. I debated the John Birch Society on this issue in Oklahoma, and, and both sides were asked, we had to respond to questions intended for the other person. So audience asked questions, both sides had to answer every question. So I got asked a question of what amendments I wanted. Well, the John Birch Society guy had to answer the same question. He said, well, I don't really want any amendments, but if I did, what I'd want would be to require to have jury trials in civil cases, not just in criminal cases. So I pulled out the Seventh Amendment and read it to him. There's a right to jury trial in civil over $20 in value. I said, you know, are there a lot of 1995 cases that you're concerned about? You know, what's, you know, is there something wrong with the Seventh Amendment? The, the reality is he didn't know the Seventh Amendment existed. And it's not enough to sort of know this stuff. You really need to know the Constitution the way I taught you at the beginning. What do the words say? Not just some of the words. You really need to know the Constitution completely. You need to know what did they mean to the people who wrote and ratified them, and you need to know what the Supreme Court has done to us on these things. And when you have those things under your grasp, and by the way, every citizen should do that. I've been teaching this to high school kids for 20 years. There are high school kids that have mastered this so well. One of them, I keep, I keep telling, run for office, run for office, run for office. One of them at 18 ran for office and got elected in New Hampshire to the state legislature, and by a one-semester high school course, he was so knowledgeable about the Constitution, they put him on the Judiciary Committee, where he was, the, at 18 years old, he was the resident expert on the Constitution, shaming all the lawyers on the Judiciary Committee. Um, so, this is not some special, it's just a matter if you gotta devote yourself to knowing it. And so people who say, well, the Constitutional Convention, you know, here's what a Constitutional Convention is. A Constitutional Convention is an extra-legal proceeding 
that's outside the existing framework of government, not under the rules of government, and it binds no one who doesn't consent to it. That's how the, the original Constitutional Convention worked. It bound no one who didn't agree to it because they were rewriting the document. By agreement, they were rewriting the document. And they, by the way, anybody that tells you that the original Constitutional Convention was a runaway convention because it was called to amend the Articles of Confederation, but instead they rewrote the whole Constitution. They've also shown you their ignorance. Now, I have to admit that for a long time I was ignorant as well. We all got our history from the, from the precursor of the Common Core, and we shouldn't have done that. The public schools misled us. They all taught us a bunch of bunk. The truth is the states called the Convention. And here's what the states told their delegates to do to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. There was not a word about only amend the Articles of Confederation. James Madison in Federalist 40 says, our authority did not come from the Articles of, of uh, excuse me, the Annapolis Convention, nor from the resolution of Congress in February of 1787, where the only amend the Articles language comes from, is that February 7, 1787 act by Congress. But they came from our states that appointed us and gave us our authority. And 10 of the states, 10 of the 12 states, said almost exactly the same thing, word for word, render the federal constitution adequate for the existencies of the union. The other two states, Massachusetts and New York, said that plus only amend the articles. And so there's an interesting historical footnote about whether the Massachusetts and New York delegates obeyed their instructions but is of no consequence to the general legality of the convention because 10 states were sent there to do what they did, render the federal constitution adequate for the existencies of the union. And it was not a runaway convention. People who tell you that have always been historically enemies of the constitution. Anyone who continues to say that, I believe that good friends of the constitution may have thought that. I was a good friend of the Constitution, and I thought that for a long time. When I actually went back and read all the original documents myself, I went, oh my goodness, I've been doubting the authenticity of the Constitution for a long, long time. I'm sure glad to clear that up. And you know why the liberals do this? Why Warren Burger and other people like that promote this idea? Because they don't want us to take the Constitution too seriously. In, so in their hip pocket, when they say, oh, you're being a constitutional literalist, if we're going to get literal on it, then the Constitution was illegally adopted in the first place. We can't even use it. It's the people who want to undermine. And so I would suggest any person who considers themselves a friend of the Constitution, stop defaming the Constitution of the United States by falsely contending that it was a runaway convention. It's just not true. And people who... Uh, So, why haven't we done this? Fear. Okay, fear is a realistic thing. Which is the more realistic fear? That the federal government will continue to abuse its power and be a functional constitutional convention day in and day out by going outside of their enumerated powers, they are changing the structure of government on a daily basis. President Obama says Congress refuses to act, so I will. That's false on several levels. I mean, there is law in place, he just refuses to enforce it. Congress refusing to act doesn't mean change it. You don't have to change it. We've got law. Is there, you know, there's not a vacuum of law, there's just a vacuum of new law that he likes. That's the only vacuum. But even if there was no law, 
The president can't make it. And when he does, that is a constitutional convention on that little point. When the Supreme Court created the right to abortion, that was a constitutional convention on that point. When they're creating the right of same-sex marriage, there is a constitutional convention on that point. There is a constitutional convention that is ongoing, and if we do the same things we've been doing for the last 50 years, it will continue to go and it will crush our liberty. There will be nothing left. I can't think of a single thing that's in the original Constitution. Not one thing that makes the Constitution great that is still actually in practice. Not a thing. Separation of powers? No. Federalism? No. Limited jurisdiction? No. Original meaning? No. I don't know. Religious freedom? No. Parental rights? No. Right to life? No. I don't know of anything that made the Constitution great. It's actually in practice right now. We have been overthrown. Justice Scalia said, day by day, this court is reinventing a constitution I do not recognize for a nation I do not know. That's the current reality. And people say, don't amend, let's defend. How? Okay, I mean, that's a nice slogan. This country isn't run by bumper stickers or bumper sticker kind of thinking, some people think we should. That's, you know, the, the guy that passed Obamacare for us, or, you know, was one of the architects, said we, he's depending on the stupidity of the American public. Uh, defend, don't amend is, is equally stupid. Because there's no, there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. How do you defend it? Like how? I debated another guy Saturday. He contends that the states should just nullify federal laws, individually, because they're void in the first place. He and I agree, all federal domestic laws on gun possession are unconstitutional, all of them. We agree on that. I said, okay, now what are you gonna do? You got a guy in jail, in federal prison, he's being tried in a federal court for a federal gun crime. You tell me how the state's gonna nullify that. How are you gonna get your citizen out of the federal jail? He doesn't have an answer. But the, the real, there, there is only one answer, by the way. You go to war. So the only theory that's available on that side of things is violence. And as a Christian and as a faithful American who believes in the Constitution, I cannot advocate violence when there is a direct provision in the Constitution that tells us we can achieve the result we want and we're just afraid to use it. I debated Andy Schlafly, Phyllis Schlafly's son. Andy was asked, when would be the time to use Article 5? You admit that it's in the Constitution and maybe someday there would be a time to do it. And he said, well, if they declare martial law, then. I said, Andy, good grief. Andy's a lawyer. He's, yeah, we've been friends for a long time. Andy, when they declare martial law, there's only one answer. And the answer is, get your guns, boys. Let's go get our country back. That's what you do when they take us over by force. But we're not at that stage. And why would we wait until they declare martial law and come to get us and get our guns? Why would we wait when the Constitution is staring us there in the face? What are we afraid of? What can they do to us 
through a, you know, let's just assume, let's suspend political reality for just a second, and let's assume that they can do their, their worst to us. What could they do to us that they haven't already done? You name one thing in the Constitution that could be taken from us that has not already been taken from us. Name one. We can take it back. Now, let me show you, you can take it back. You can reverse the Supreme Court. They're not totally lawless. They like the pretense of being lawful. In 1990, in a case called Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court cleverly picked a case involving Indians and drugs. I gave them, at the same time period, another case involving evangelical Christian kids and public school textbooks that the school district stipulated violated the, the religious freedom of the kids, religious beliefs of the kids, rather, and they expelled the kids from school for refusing to read the textbooks. Those are the two cases they had in front of them at the same exact time. My case and the Indians and drugs. They took the Indians and drugs case very selectively and with that case threw the free exercise of religion into the constitutional trash can. And the rule was this. You cannot get a religious exemption from the free exercise clause for a neutral law of general applicability. Let me translate that. Law of general applicability says you can't serve alcohol to minors. Pastor or priest serves communion wine to minors. Technically, violation of the general rule, you can't serve alcohol to minors. Nobody in their right mind, first of all, nobody in their right mind is ever going to prosecute, but just on paper, if somebody had prosecuted before the Smith decision, Everybody knows there would be a religious freedom defense to that, and the, and the priest would win. And so nobody would ever do that. Nobody would be stupid enough to ever even try. But today, thanks to the Smith decision, you do not have a constitutional defense to that. Nor Patrick Henry College, we will never hire a homosexual professor or anything. Janitor. You know, we're just not going to do it. Violates our religious beliefs. No, not that. Somebody wouldn't sneak by, we don't know about it. But if we know about it, we're not hiring them. And so, um, do we have a constitutional defense to that? Nope. Thanks to Employment Division versus Smith. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted by Congress in 1994, unanimously in the House, and 98 to, 97 to 3 in the Senate. I'm the guy who named it. I was the chairman of the group who wrote it, and we bound the Supreme Court's hand on religious freedom cases involving the federal government. And when Hobby Lobby's case went before the Supreme Court this last year, the judge that wrote the Smith decision against religious freedom, Justice Scalia, voted for Hobby Lobby under the textual requirements of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so. If you know what you're doing, you can bind the Supreme Court up tightly. And we can do this. When 34 states apply for a convention, we can do this. How can we do it? A hundred people, our plan is this. We're focused on 40 states. There are 3,000, excuse me, 4,000 state house districts in those 40 states, 1,300 Senate districts. But if you've organized a state by state house districts, you've organized it, the overlay of the Senate districts doesn't change anything. Our goal 
is to have a viable political organization in 75% of those districts. That's 3,000 districts in those 40 states. 100 people in each of those districts who will join up with us and, and will call their legislator and say, support a convention of the states. And then when we get the convention done and we have the amendments out for ratification, you know, ratify the balanced budget amendment, the tax limitation amendment, and so on. That's the plan. That's 300,000 people nationally. That's one-tenth of 1%. 1 Why can one-tenth of 1% 1 achieve a complete constitutional victory where we return to the original meaning of the Constitution on all these areas? Is because this is not an election. This is not electoral politics. Electoral politics can influence this, but this is lobbying. And that is a bigger number than almost ever turn out on any state-based lobbying issue. It's extremely rare for a legislator to get 100 calls on any one issue. And if we can deliver 100 calls to 75% of the members of the legislature in those states, we believe we can get simple majorities, because simple majorities are all that's required. Now, in some districts, it may be a little harder. OK, what if we have 1,000? in every district. A thousand in every district is just three million people. There are Tea Party groups that have four million people on their list. Four million, just one Tea Party group. The homeschool group that I, I uh, have led for a long, long time has uh, on all of our lists together, the paid members and the others who get our email, about a quarter of a million families. That's about 500,000 people. A lot. You know, getting to 300,000 or 3 million people organized to do this is not a fanciful idea. It's very realistic because it will be, in fact, a majority of those who turn out. And all of politics is governed by this principle. The winner is a majority of the people who participate. It's always the rule. And in lobbying, one you know, something between one-tenth of one percent and one percent of the population is more than sufficient to achieve everything I want and have described and you want, I believe, by being here tonight. Do you want limited federal government? Do you want the federal budget, if, if, if the plans that I have described to you are enacted, the federal budget would be about a trillion dollars a year rather than about three trillion dollars a year. Anorexic. Compared, I, I, I spoke in Virginia about this on Saturday and said one of the side benefits for us here in this area, there will never be jams on the Beltway anymore. That would be great. And so the number of federal employees will plummet. They'll have to get, get real jobs and actually produce. And the good news is we would have such an economic boon in this country that the real jobs would flourish and pick up the slack in, a no, in no time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. If we want to be living in the land of tyranny, then live in fear. It's time to be brave. It's time to stand up. It's time to get this done. I ask you to help me. And now I'm glad to take any of your questions. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Did I misunderstand? Is it the state of Indiana and Senator David Long leading part of it? Uh, 
David Long, who's the president of the, the, uh, the, uh, the question is, what's David Long, who's the president of the Senate of Indiana's role in all this? I'm paraphrasing the question. David Long is the, uh, one of the two top leaders of a group called the Assembly of State Legislators. It used to be called the Mount Vernon Assembly. And what they're doing uh, is they're, write, they're drafting proposed rules for a convention on whatever topic. Uh, and uh, uh, my organization, the organization I'm a part of, Citizens for Self-Governance, which is sponsoring the Convention of the States Project, hosted the first luncheon where they, these guys got the idea to do that. So that was our part. They're totally, it's only state legislators that are involved in that. And they're, they're just writing the procedural rules, how the committees are chosen and so on. They're not, they, they're not official, nor can they be official until you get to the convention. But the plan is this, they have the rules all drafted, they intend to have a majority of the states instruct their delegates to vote for that package of rules. And when 26 state delegations are instructed to vote for that package of rules, then it's locked up. And by the way, the victory always goes to those who are prepared. And so it's a bipartisan effort. It's really uh, clean. And the only rule that they've out, that I know of, that they've um, completely settled on, is the one state, one vote rule. And so, yes, so David Long is leading that side. He's not leading any of the substantive application efforts. He's leading the procedural efforts. We've got to make a choice of what we're going to do. Doing nothing is not a viable alternative. The Bible says, for him who knows to do right and doeth not to him is sin. So doing nothing is not a viable alternative. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Nullification theories are legally indefensible, politically unreal, and not a big enough weapon to battle just the code of federal regulations. And nobody, I've asked a lot of people, nobody has ever presented a theory of how you can nullify the national debt. You know, try nullifying the national debt. Just, even in theory, no, you know, the big stuff. Can't, can't get there. If by nullification we mean don't take the money from the common core, of course the states can do that, and of course the states should not take the money from the common core. That's not nullification. That's a, a decision the states can make today. So that's not an alternative. Armed revolution is an immoral alternative at this stage of this country. Wishing and hoping and thinking and praying that we're going, oh, we're going to get the Republican savior in, in 2016, or we're going to get, you know, we're going to get a libertarian president, or we're going to get the Constitution Party, or you know, the utopian is going to come in. Utopian. I don't care who we send to Washington D.C. in 2016. I don't care who it is. If it was me, and I'm more conservative than any major person running for president right now, any of them. And I couldn't deliver as president of the United States all the things I'm talking about here tonight. Couldn't deliver it. And so there is no solution in Washington, D.C. The founders said, when the federal government exceeds its authority, the states have the power, are given the power to overturn the 
of the federal government's actions by putting in new constitutional barriers to stop the federal abuse of power. That's the only reason they gave us Article 5 as it is. So the question is, is the federal government abusing its power? Is there any other alternative that, that is realistic to check the power? No, not in the Constitution. Any ideas are extra-constitutional, and I hope that you believe that they're unworkable. They clearly are extra-constitutional. They're not written in the text of the Constitution. The only solution that's in the text of the Constitution is the one I'm proposing. The, the highest law of the land is the Constitution. The highest power in the land is in the state legislatures because only the state legislatures have the power to unilaterally change the Constitution of the United States. They can propose the amendments, they can ratify the amendments. Only the states can do that. That's the highest power in the land. And with that power comes moral responsibility. If we don't want this country to die in terms of being a constitutional republic that loves liberty, we have to act. And if you believe that, come help me. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe it will be effective, fine. Go do something else. Just don't throw sticks and stones at us. Just, you know, either help or go do something productive. We don't need to be throwing sticks and stones at... at, at I'm not going to throw sticks and stones when people are trying to do the Common Core opposition. In fact, I produced a couple of movies to help you defeat the Common Core. You know, I'm helping in all the areas. I ask you to help us because, like a lot of you, I don't want my kids and I don't want my grandkids and I don't want my great-grandkids to grow up in a land where there's not liberty. I preached at my dad's funeral service about three weeks ago. My dad was a public school teacher and principal. Uh, the greatest blessing at that service was a bunch of his former students came and shared. I knew that the kids loved him as a principal, but I had no idea how much he shared Christ with them in a public school in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And prayed with them, led them to Christ. Wonderful legacy. Oh, yeah, it's illegal. I would have defended him, but it's illegal. I w it was a great legacy. It wasn't back then. Yeah. I... I want to leave my kids a legacy as well. And the legacy that I want to leave them is that the Constitution of the United States was in a better position than when I arrived on the scene. Those kids' lives were changed in a better position than they had been before my dad got to them. If you want to leave a legacy to your kids, I invite you to help me. Thank you so much for attending tonight. God bless you all. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.